Hey, Green Future Growers. Welcome to Season 4. I'm your host, Jackie Marie Beyer. I'm here to help you create, grow, and enjoy your own organic oasis. I hope you'll subscribe for free on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And let's get growing. Welcome to the Green Organic Garden. It is Tuesday, February 22nd, 2022. And I have an awesome guest on the line who also is in Montana to talk about something I know listeners love, you've asked me about, that you are probably growing. And if you're not, you're going to want to be growing. And that's fruit trees. So from the Montana Fruit Tree Company, here is Luke Ruffner Robinson. So welcome to the show, Luke. Yeah, thanks, Jackie. Thanks for having me. Go ahead and tell listeners a little bit about yourself and your place that you guys, how big is your place? Yeah, so uh, so I, I grew up in actually Northeast Ohio and came out to Montana. Let's see, that was about 12, 12 years ago. And yeah, came out here for school and then ended up, ended up staying and yeah. And we started this nursery about, about really three years ago. Um, I, I originally wanted to be an architect and my dad was an architect. He, he actually designed commercial, designed commercial facilities, um, fair bit of, fair bit of, uh, commercial facilities. He did some residential. Um, so I kind of wanted to just follow in his footsteps and, uh, but I didn't, I, one thing that I felt was kind of problematic, um, at least from the standpoint of involving yourself in the field of architecture is that, you know, you go to school and you, you, you get all this training and then you go and um, you, you, you get your apprenticeship and then you're not actually an architect until like once you actually are immersed and maybe the same can be said for a lot of fields, but how do you know if you're going to actually like that until you're at the helm? Right. And so for me, it was very much like, how do I get my feet wet and know what it's like to be an architect before spending the next eight years of my life, um, you know, training and doing all that. And so, um, I, I ended up getting an apprenticeship or kind of just an internship with this fellow, uh, it was part of Woof. I don't know if you're familiar with. I'm sure you are, but um, the worldwide. Yeah, you hear about it? Yeah, worldwide opportunities on organic farms. I, I've heard other people say willing workers on organic farms, but either way, um, where you go around the world, anywhere, anywhere in the world, um, where they have, where they're part of the Woof network, and it's usually a farm that just applies. It's pretty pretty simple, and um, I was, I was looking cause it's hard to, to just say, oh, I want to design something here in the U S without having the, the, the training, right? So people would say rightfully so, well, what's your, how, how do I know you're qualified to design this, this building? And so, um, I ended up scouring just the, um, wolf pages in various countries, mostly, mostly in Europe at the time I was interested in just traveling to Europe. And so I got um, I got a hold of this individual who had this farm in northern Portugal, and he you know he said you know in search of um, designer to design our um, composting toilet on our organic farm permaculture farm in northern Portugal, and I'm like 
all right, I have no idea what any of that stuff means, but I'll, I'll try it. So, um, yeah, he, suffice to say after that month and a half that I was there helping him design the composting toilet bathroom, I, I was a little bit, um, I was a little bit upset because I came to the conclusion that I didn't want to be an architect. Um, and it, I was upset because I'm, I had invested a couple of years in, in, you know, this trajectory, but I was also relieved because I'm like, you know, better learn now than 10 years down the road. Um, and so I came back a little bit dismayed and, you know, at one, I, I ended up recording a lot of the tours that this fellow gave on this farm. And I, I listened to the, to, to those tours that he gave and it's amazing how much you miss the first time, um, around. And, and I ended up, um, transcribing that because there's a lot of really dense information there. And I just, I got really interested in, in what he was doing. It didn't really make intuitive sense at first when I was there. So I think I had, there was a lot of unlearning that I had to do being from Ohio and seeing how they grow a lot of the crops they grow there, like the corn. I mean, just monocultures of corn. And this, this fellow had, it was an entire forest ecosystem that he was basically mimicking on his four acre plot there. And he had ducks, he had um, different patches. So this part of the property was the dry land patch. Um, this part was, you know, kind of his, he did have kind of his, his row crops in one area, but the common thread was a, a ton of diversity. I mean, he's blessed to live in a spot where four climate zones can kind of converge in any given area. And I think there's about five places on the planet where, where that is the case. Um, there's one in Chile, there's one in um, Northern California, Australia, um, I talked about Portugal, and then um, Johannesburg. So these are all kind of maritime climate systems that where you bet it, where you get the, the chilling hours required for a lot of tree crops to grow successfully in, in that sort of niche of, of tree crops. But then you also get a lot of the warmer climate stuff. So he could grow, he could grow apples and colder climate crops, but he could tree crops, but he could also be growing figs, uh, things that we just really, it's not a snowball's chance in Hades, as, uh, as one of my professors would say. That, that we could grow figs in Montana, at, at least without doing work to try to try to protect them from those frosts. Um, so anyways, um, all this is to say, I, I, I came- two quick questions? Yeah, of course. Okay. Did you, did this guy speak English or did you have to learn Spanish or like, how did that work? Um, so I, a year and a half, two years prior, um, I actually lived down in Argentina. And so, um, yeah, this is just like a, a totally separate story that I could probably spend an hour on, but I didn't know any, I didn't know any Spanish and I came down, like I arrived at the airport. Um, I tried to actually get involved in this program, but they, they denied me because I didn't have the university program, um, uh, exchange program. They, they denied me because I didn't have a sufficient amount of credits. Um, even though my friend said, oh, you, you're totally fine. Just apply. And then I applied and they're like, no, you, you haven't even taken Spanish. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, that, that was that was kind of a massive ego check um, for any of any of the listeners out there. Uh, if you're you know, any, any 18, an 18 year old, I mean, in general, I don't think it 
gender really, really matters. I think for just, you know, being a, a, a guy and at 18 and having a pretty, I, I don't know, sizable ego, um, which I, I think I'm still working to kind of continually kind of set back, but that was one of the, the greatest ways of set of setting that back, just um, immersing yourself in another culture and allowing you to also be extremely appreciative and grateful for what you have, but pushing your, yourself. And I think Nelson Mandela, I think was quoted as saying, you can connect with a human being in their, um, in their uh, second language at the brain level, like their, their second tongue at the brain level. But if you connect with them in their, in their mother tongue, then you, then you're connecting at the heart level. And I think that totally made a lot of sense. Um, or at least in practice that I, I was able to meet a ton of people from, from that experience of just learning that other language. And, and I've since gone on to, to study other languages. And um, so that really helped in Portugal because they're, the, the Portuguese language is, you know, it's so similar to Spanish. Um, um, okay, so my other question is, yeah. are you a rock star millennial born between 1980 and 1995? Or are you like Gen uh, Z? No, I'm, I'm born in 1990. So um, awesome. I, I got a flip phone in, when I was a freshman in high school. And uh, um, so I didn't, I didn't, I didn't have a smart, I didn't grow up with a smartphone. We, we had dial up internet growing up. So yeah, I, I think that would classify me. I think if you experienced dial up, you're probably a millennial, right? Wouldn't that make sense? I don't know. The dates I go with are 1980 to 1995. And I'm like trying to write a book on the rockstar millennials that I've interviewed on my show. Oh, they have really? amazing stories like you do and they're willing to work hard and put themselves in these weird places and but they also like listen listen to your, you can hear your compassion coming through for you know understanding other people and and just um i just love so much of what you're saying and just you fit right in there so uh, yeah do you want me to i know this has kind of been a little bit meandering but i can i can try to steer the story back on course so the listeners aren't like kind of totally scattered but um I, like yeah did it really take you a month and a half to build the composting toilet like i'm really curious about what that looks like because i want a composting toilet on our property i just want like a bathroom down by the garden so like when visitors come or if we have woofers coming here like like we technically i mean we have a bathroom we have running water and a shower and everything but we still use our outhouse because i don't know i just i love my outhouse and um like but i also like don't like i feel like they should have their own place and like how hard was it to, like did it really take a month and a half to build that and like do you have any no i mean i, I, I should talk about that but yeah yeah i should clarify so uh i was just there to help with the research and design process of the of the composting toilet like when i say composting toilet i'm talking about the the design of the composting toilet, as well as the, that structure that it was be, in which it was being housed, right? So we went with it. No, it did not get completed. There was another fellow that came after me that I believe uh, ended up using my initial designs, and then he refined. I think refined the design a little bit, um, and then they and then they actually built the bathroom itself that that was after it may it may actually have even have been a year after i left 
So uh, the following summer. So no, not a month and a half. Not that it can't be done if you're if you're hustling, but he, he this this fellow who owned the farm was was very methodical. And and actually that was what got me really interested in I, I call it the systems-based approach to growing food. Um, you know, which uh, or, I think orga- organic can fall into that. Uh, I mean, permaculture, um, regenerative agriculture. I mean, there, there's all these words, but I think I think anytime you're using a systems-based approach, um, I think that's that's really when you start to see benefit in in productivity and um, in uh, I, I, all these different properties that can emerge from the system beneficially. I think so this fellow, his name was Guy. He really bright. I think he he got his um, PhD from the Royal Institute of Stockholm in, in system science. And, and I if I'm not mistaken, I think he was teaching at the time. And then not when I was there prior, but before he even started the farm, and then gave up all of that to kind of use this systems-based way of designing his farm and implementing it. Uh, he could actually use use the theoretical approach that he learned and taught at the graduate level on his own farm. So that that was kind of really out there for me at the time. I didn't really quite get that, and then that's when I kind of had to re-engineer everything, reverse engineer everything through those. Um, recordings that I had made and a lot of my notes. So I came back and was like, just totally inspired. Um, Although it's funny, I wasn't inspired at first. I was just kind of absorbing all of it. And then when I came back to the US, I I became really fascinated by this alternative way of growing food, but also um, cycling nutrients and energy on site and mimicking nature, uh, you know, really, really understanding the hydrology of your landscape. I mean, he was doing all of that. And um, I just thought, wow, this is really neat. And then I, I withdrew my architecture plans. I was looking to go to MSU and enroll in their architectural program there. And then basically gave up all of that and ended up learning that there was I learned, I started diving into the system science literature and specifically as it pertains to ecology, because ecosystems are, are one of the clearest ways in, in, in my view of being able to observe the inner workings of system science. And so when I started learning about that, I learned about a fellow by the name of H.T. Odom. That's H.T. And then O-D-U-M. And Odom was, was a brilliant, he's, I think he's probably the most brilliant scientist or one of the most brilliant scientists that you've never heard of, that, that a lot of, most people have not heard of him. Um, but people in the aquatic uh, ecosystem literature or uh, with, with a, a, aquatic ecosystems backgrounds have heard of them. People studying stream ecology, or, or even um, or even ocean or estuarine ecology have heard of him because that's where he got his start. Uh, but then he started doing a lot in the way of uh, research in terrestrial ecosystems. And so when I when I started learning about this this guy's 
um, research specifically towards the, the latter part of his career. He died, unfortunately, in, in the early 2000s. Um, and he pioneered this idea called um, emergy, right? Emergy with an M. And I think that's kind of been a, a big influence in my thinking of just not just um, not just, you know, not just growing food in, but constructing a, a business as well. And also just living in a, um, I don't want to say sustainable, because I think that that, in a sense, kind of misses the mark, but maybe, maybe think, think about it in, in terms of, yeah, this, this, this regenerative way of, of living, um, which, of course, I'm sure that, like, yeah, I'm, I'm missing the mark there. I think that, I think that it, a systems-based way of thinking about it might tell you, okay, what what's the previously available energy that's used up in the process of, of doing anything, whether it's creating a good or creating a service or, I mean, I don't know, traveling around or, or going on a bike ride and, and having that whole systems view of, of any um, process that you're engaging in as, as a person. And I think that's what Odom's research really did is it, it tackled this idea or it, it got to the essence of what are the inner workings of any, any process, whether it's, um, you know, cutting, cutting down a tree in the forest or um, biking across town. If you were to how really work, get you to the fruit trees, I'll get there. You tell us how big your place was. Yeah. So we're, we're only on about a half acre in our nursery in Missoula. And then we've got another um, quarter acre plot, but this is kind of just interim before we really start to, to ramp up um, more, more of our, our tree crop production. So yeah, um, to, to answer how that all related, um, I think for me, it was, it was, wow, like growing food is, is really kind of at the nexus of, of nature and culture. I think it was Michael Pollan that said cooking is at the nexus of nature and culture, but I, I would extend that to growing food as well. And if you're, if you're looking at that nexus of nature and culture and we're on the culture side and, and also on the nature side, and then there is natural ecological systems um, on which we depend to grow food, a really important way of observing our, our role in that process is is looking at energy and looking at um, material and energy cycling. And I mean, that's what you're doing when you're composting, you're, you're cycling nutrients, you're, you're doing so in a way that is kind of the, the, the human way, right? I mean, we're, we're not out uh, eating grass and defecating. Um, I mean, maybe some, some of the listeners out there are, um, you never know, right? But um, <laughs> I think that, uh, you know, a, a a way that we try to construct this business is through using a lot of the, and I know this may, this may gross out some of your listeners. And I, I'd say for people who are, you know, using veggie crops, um, I'm not, or growing veggie crops, it, it, it's going to be a different approach, but um, we're, we're working with the, the city of Missoula to basically um, use a lot of the biosolids, which really is, is just, to be honest, a, a euphemism for human shit, but uh, the, those biosolids are are an, are really nutrient rich, and they're 
um, what they do is they they actually convert all of the the raw waste, you know, the, so the you know the effluent, the, so the, you know the urine, the feces, all of that. They they compress it. They the effluent actually goes under. Um, well, it's treated once, and then it uh, it goes under a system of about ten thousand hybrid poplars that are all growing, so that so that it can um, get out some of those nitrates before it's then actually most of those nitrates before it's then released back into the ecosystem, which a lot of city uh, treatment plants do not do at all, and they they should incorporate some sort of bio based remediation protocol. But in, in this case, um, those biosolids that are then left are, are then co composted with all of the city's uh, yard, yard scraps, quote unquote, so leaves, grass clippings, um, I mean, felled trees from just, I mean, even local areas or, or urban urban trees that are that are in need of that are dying and in need of replacement and they're therefore fell down and sent to the to the composting site so so we're all kind of working in conjunction and it i would say it's a really neat it, um well before i get ahead of myself we we use that we use though that as our soil for growing our our plants and so um we don't do we don't you uh, grow our tree crops in the same way that a lot of other nurseries do, which which um, unfortunately in in the nursery business there there are a lot of there are these industrial nurseries that tend to be pretty um, how do I say it um, intensive with the way in which they're growing their trees and they're using a ton of um, quick release fertilizers and um, you know, they're of course in very fertile territory, but um, it's very intensive. And so I, I like the idea of, of using this cycle, these cycled nutrients. And, uh, you know, one, one thing too, that people may have concern, concerns with, and, and another thing I'm not necessarily, unless you know where the humanure is coming from, um, then I would say be careful about using it on on veggie crops. Um, like I, I I actually did once use this hum, humanure on um, onions and tomatoes, and I will say they they grew pretty well. But I think and I don't I don't know to what extent. You know I mean there I don't know maybe you can make an argument. I'm a little kooky, so there was maybe some effect there, but no. Um, I don't know to what extent it actually it actually was um, detrimental to my health. Um, it's not like I, I I did it that much, but it was more the psychological effect. I think um, it, you know, but I think trees are if there are heavy metals and pharmaceuticals in the sewage sewage. I think that a, a bio based approach to uh, eliminating or alleviating and breaking up some of those compounds is, is way, way preferred to just doing what a lot of cities do, which is they don't even, they don't compost it and they just, they compress the biosolids and then a waste company, uh, allied waste, for instance, or Republic, I'm, I'm not saying those in part, I'm not uh, scapegoating them. Those are the companies around here, but they'll, 
they'll just take them to the to the dump. And I think that that's such a waste of vital nutrients that can be used. And if there are any um, hazardous materials in the biosolids, then they're they're not being they're it's not being um, alleviated at all. Maybe they should grow some hemp on top of it because doesn't that take out like the metals and stuff that's bad in the soil? And then they could, um, and then they could like use the hemp as a cover crop and chop it back into it. And then it would be, I don't know. Yeah, I don't care about what fruit trees you have growing at your place. My husband wants to know my stepdaughter lives in Butte and, and we wanted to see about getting her some fruit trees and we were curious about like what would you know what would grow good where she lives or actually I guess they're down in Dillon now which is yeah south of Butte and like what, what kind of fruit trees do you guys like are you growing yeah so um we I'd say our main fruit trees are apricot apple plum cherry so tart and sweet cherry peach pear and nectarine um, and then we're growing a fair, we're starting actually a, a growing a, a lot of different nut trees. Um, so I, we've been in contact with, um, yeah, my, my buddy Buzz, who has Perfect Circle Farm. I've obtained a ton of seeds from him. And he's, he's kind of followed the whole clan of uh, growers to, that are, have been growing nuts, uh, tree nuts out of Ontario. Um, and so there, there's some, there's some good genetics that I've obtained through Buzz. Some, some good genetics I've obtained through um, Ken over at Oikos Tree Crops. Um, so that, so that, that actually is kind of our next project of, of growing as many, as many viable nut bearing trees for cold climates as we possibly can. And then we do a bunch of uh, native uh, uh, trees, shrubs, and 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 then we do grapevines. So that's kind of the, those are kind of that, that's where we're at right now. We're actually in the process because we've, um, so some, some listeners might think Montana, you're, you're growing peaches and nectarines in Montana. I will say that, that Montana, Montana's climate, like a lot of places, varies pretty drastically. So we get a lot of the, the warmer climate systems coming in that, that, that come over the, the Cascades, right? And then there's that rain shadow creating dry Eastern Washington, which is a, a sight to behold that there's rainforest and desert basically only at like a hundred miles from one another um, on coastal Washington and then, you know, central Washington. Um, but then a lot of that moisture actually then falls before the Rockies and, and creates the, the inland temperate rainforest, which if any listeners, you know, look, look into, you'll, you'll be, you'll be pretty uh, excited to learn that, learn about this amazing inland temperate rainforest. That's one of, one of, that's the most extensive in the world. And one of, one of the, um, the few, the few in the world actually. Um, and that, that comes down, it kind of hugs the Alberta BC line um, and comes down in, into the U S and then, and then actually hugs the Idaho Montana border. It's, it's not, I wouldn't say it's the heartland to quote, lichenologist Toby Spreibel here in it's not the heartland that that inland temperate rainforest here in the U.S. that you'll have to see that to kind of um, the Incomaplu River Valley is is where the best example of lowland inland temperate rainforest but um, 
without, I guess, going down that rabbit hole, because I, I certainly can, um, the, it, as that moisture is then, is then captured in part because of the uh, orthographic effects of the Rocky Mountains that, that pull that down, which then interestingly enough makes another rain shadow, which is east of the Continental Divide. So where you're, um, well, not quite in Butte, but it, somewhat in Butte, even, even colder, drier, and windier though, east of, of Butte. And uh, we're in that pocket there where we're still, we're getting, we're capturing some of that moisture um, not as much as, as um, say, like nor northwest of where Missoula is, but um, we're capturing some of the, those warmer air, air systems and that moisture. And so we can grow peaches, sweet cherries, uh, some nectarines, and then, of course, all the other trees that, that um, I mentioned. So... Um, Anyway, I, I guess as I was saying, uh, we are technically zone five, um, but I, I think, and it's maybe less of a of an issue for maybe some of your listeners out there who are growing more of the, the veggie crops. But for for our tree crops, we've been learning a ton about our climate over the last couple of years, especially. Um, and as it pertains to the extremes in which fruit trees can handle extreme temps. And uh, it, it's, I, I mean, all of your listeners are going to, I mean, maybe unless they're in, you said you had some listeners in Australia um, in, in perhaps some more temperate climates, but I, I think a, a, a good portion of your listeners have to deal with frost. It's, it's just an ever, ever evolving or ever constant, ever present issue for fruit trees. And as it pertains to understanding of zone hardiness, it, we're a zone five, but it, there's so many different factors that come in that, that come into play, you know? So well, first of all, that oftentimes the, those zones are measured in the middle of the winter. Those, those minimum lows that define the, the cold hardiness zones are measured in middle of winter. So, because that's typically the coldest point that any given area will, will see, at least in Montana. I mean, apart from some of these polar winds that can come down from the Arctic, uh, like what, actually what, what we're seeing right now, that can happen kind of later. Usually January, February are, are our coldest um, months. And that's where we'll, that's where we may see negative 20. Um, which every, every variety that we have can handle a negative 20, uh, in, in theory, but really the, the crux of the matter is those early are the early fall in late or late winter frosts that can be really particularly devastating on young fruit trees. And even fruit trees that are 10, 15 years old, there, there, there have been, uh, growers of ours who had mature cherry trees that lost them from the negative 10 that we saw on October 26th of 2020. I mean, that was just totally decimating for not actually just Montana. This was kind of down to I, Utah. I was just talking with uh, the research station here down just south of us in Corvallis. And they were, they were talking about how 
growers from Montana, and I'm sure even Canada as well, down to uh, Utah, Colorado, just saw, I don't know about Colorado, maybe, don't quote me on that, but definitely down to Utah, saw just extreme death, just to put it quite frankly, from that event alone. And usually it was the, uh, the stone fruits that don't have the really, really cold climate genetics. So a lot of the sweet cherries, I mean, we grow gold sweet cherry, which is the most cold hardy sweet cherry that I know of in the world. Maybe someone can let me know of a more cold hardy sweet cherry out there, but it's able to withstand negative 38. And that was measured in uh, River Falls, Wisconsin. Um, of course, it was probably in January or February when the tree was really hardened off. But the, the issue with those, even a negative 10 in October, is that those trees have, in my understanding of it, they've just, for one, their metabolism still still cranking up, even if, I mean, you can, you can reduce the water intake a fair bit, and that's going to start slowing down growth, especially given that uh, especially given that a lot of these nutrients are, are solubilized in water and they're all, when you're cutting water, you're also cutting nutrients. And when you're cutting both, you're, you're basically, you're telling the, the tree's metabolism to, to basically start to slow down. So that's the theory of, of really cutting off water, even in like August, early August. Um, we did that for some, and I've known about this for years and it's never caught up to us. And I don't, maybe even if we did do that for all of our trees in, um, at the end of October of 2020, when we saw the negative 10, that, um, that maybe they still would have seen the same sort of winter injury. But at that point, when the metabolism is still cranking high or even moderately, then those ice crystals can, can come in and just literally just shred those cell membranes. And then there goes your, there goes your fruit tree. Uh, you can see visibly the next day that, that the similar to like similar to if you have squash, right. Um, and you're growing squash and it succumbs to frost damage. You'll, you'll see right away uh, that those tissues that were once kind of light green are now dark green and their, their, their moisture has been bled out of them. They've, that, the, that the water pressure filled balloons that they are, are just popped at that point and all those cells are dead. At least they're in the process of dying. So yeah, I mean, that, that's been a big, that's, that's kind of made us pivot in terms of what we're trying to grow. So we're really trying to just, even though we're zone five, we're, we're seeing colder fall frost than probably any, any, just about anywhere in the country. Maybe it's, you know, somewhat colder in, in a few other places in Montana and in North Dakota. Um, but that's that's making us need to grow like zone one, two, three. Uh, we're we're totally retrofitting all of our apricots. We're, we're growing as much apricots that are, I mean, hardy to zone one. Some of them, like sunrise apricot, that's hardy to zone one according to Bob Purvis. Same thing with um, some of the other zone two and three apricots that are that are of the Manchurian genetic line. Those are, those are kind of the route that we're going. And, and we've obtained a lot of genetics from Bob Purvis in, in Idaho. Um, and same thing with the Japanese American plum hybrids, a lot, a lot in the way of like zone two plums, zone three plums. Um, 
we're going to be growing the zone zone three ish zone four uh, peach of Siberian peach genetics. Um, got that one from Buzz and um, of course all the apples and and pears. Those are uh, I I think easier to easier to find for really cold climate um, apples and pears. Those are um, I mean, if anyone, if anyone's curious of all the varieties that we're going to be growing in the future of what of what we're talking about, shoot me an email or something. Um, I won't go into all of that right now, but yeah, we're we're totally retrofitting everything too because of you know, even if even if there are listeners out there that are that are skeptical of the whole climate science thing, which I'm, I'm not, and with the climate change. Uh, it seems like it's certainly happening right before our eyes. There is one thing that um, I've even I've even heard, you know, people of more conservative disposition say, which is that that it, regardless of what you think, there's a there's a, a climate um, how would how would you call it like a, a chaos maybe might be the word where just unforeseen abnormalities in you know, we have seen these early fall frosts in the past. Um, we're seeing more of them. It just seems erratic. Maybe that's the word I'm looking for. And how do we protect ourselves? For, even if we're wrong about this, it, about it seeming more erratic um, climatically than it has been in the past, um, it still is a really, I think, good idea to find the toughest genetics and build your system around that because it's already hard growing. So you might as well, you might as well try your, your damage to obtain the best genetics that you can so that they can be sort of, uh, anti-fragile, which is a word that I, I like, and I'm using more of it as opposed to resilient, sort of kind of getting stronger in the event of volatility. Can I just like, I know it was a while ago, but did you say something about like, if you give the trees extra water, like in November before, for that it's gonna help the tree more likely be to survive because it's helping it get those nutrients into its system Is that what you yeah said, or did i get that backwards because i wasn't sure if you then you said something like maybe in august you want to start cutting off the water well okay so you're bringing up something that's i i didn't fully tell the whole part of that story um so you're reminding me of something so roger joy who's a a, a nurseryman just south of us in the Bitterroot, and who's been at it for about 40 years, uh, he cuts his water off August 1st. And he's growing, you know, apple, plum, pear in a, in his nursery commercially. And when he told me that in 2016, I, I just, I didn't, I didn't really believe him, <laughs> which is silly, right? How arrogant or, of me to not believe this guy who's telling me something and who's been at it for 30 years longer than I have been. I just, it just seemed crazy to me to think that we're getting hundred degree temps in August. And meanwhile, he's saying, no, you got to cut the water off. But it actually, when you unpack what he's saying, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, I brought up from a tree metabolism standpoint, how that slows down the, the tree's metabolism and, and, and harden and helps transition the tree into hardening off. And then, and then, um, really preparing itself for winter because we can see frost that following month in September. Um, 
but uh, more importantly, or just as important is, is the fact that when, when you do something like that, um, or how do I put it? There, there's visible signs that you can look for. Um, so I don't want to say more important, but every climate system is going to be different where you're doing this. So if you do end up taking this approach, then you really want to do um, one you really want to do is after you've cut the water off significantly, and I would say maybe even end of July, start to, well, I'm speaking for Montana, starting end of July, cutting, cutting the water in half, and then maybe that first week, just, just stop giving it water altogether. And what that'll do is you'll see the turgor pressure, that osmotic pressure that exists in inside the living tissues, you'll see that start to drop in parts of the tree. The specific parts that you want to see that drop are in the leaf pedial, right? So in that stem of the leaf, you want to see that drop because when you do, that'll, that'll start to tell you that, that its metabolism is shutting down. If you see that pressure drop inside that newly, the newly formed tissue present in the new limbs, then you've got an issue. And so you may want to be careful with it if you start to see that. Um, I don't think you would because even we've even pushed these trees to the limit and we don't at our site see leaf. We, we see leaf stem pressure drop. We don't see uh, leaf. We don't see limb pressure drop of newly formed limbs, new wood, new growth from that year. Um, so once you start to see that in the leaf pedial, that pressure drop, you know you're doing the right thing. Just just keep doing it, even if you're seeing hundred degree days. I know it sounds crazy, but just keep telling yourself people have been doing this and it's been working and it prepares them for winter. Even if you think, oh my gosh, I'm killing your tree, you won't kill the tree unless you see the limb pressure drop, which I don't think you will. But what about your harvest? Is your fruit gonna suffer? So your fruit doesn't suffer from like from what I've seen your fruit shouldn't suffer because at that point you're, I mean, the, the, the tree has enough water stored in its reserves to, to be able to, and the only thing that would probably really, the only fruits that would be affected would be, um, well, I guess there are, there are plums, apricots, peaches, nectarines have already, have already fruited by that point. Um, cherries have already fruited Apples, pears, plums have not. And of course, I'm only speaking about our, our main seven that we grow. Um, there's a lot more, but I, I haven't seen any issue with, because really, I mean, the, the fruits by that point have, have matured significantly and they should be getting all the water that they need. Um, you know, maybe this is, this would be a question for Roger because he's got more, I mean, he's got time on his side, but he's got way more established fruit trees. Um, but from from what I'm what we're seeing, no, it shouldn't it shouldn't affect the the flavor or quality of the fruit at all. Um, well, these are great tips. My husband was really worried because I don't know if you guys got the snow we just got this week, but like so Sunday it snowed like crazy, 
we got more snow than we've had since before Christmas. Everything was getting really icy. My husband was so worried we we're going to lose the trees because then now it dropped down. Like today, it's like, I don't know, way below zero. Like all of a sudden after like, it was almost like spring. We were totally like, Punxsutawney's wrong. You know, like spring is coming. Things are warming up. Like it almost felt like almost all the snow was gone. And now all of a sudden we got a foot of snow Sunday, which I think was probably a blessing because maybe it, it kind of covered things. But it, it was like weird because it was also like rainy and like there was ice on the baby on the trees. And we're, we're still like, I don't know what's going to happen from this storm. But yeah, yeah I mean, you're weird stuff has been happening. Like I, I wrote an article in the paper about how like seasoned gardeners around here, like it's a totally new learning curve because it's not like it used to be 10 years ago or 20 years ago or you know, it's so unpredictable what's yeah. going to happen. Yeah, anyway, sure. Luke, unfortunately, I have another interview starting in um, a few minutes. So like, can we go through the getting to the root of things really quick? Like, do you have a least favorite activity you have to force yourself to get out and do? Like, what do you have? Like an orchard? Do you have like a regular garden? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, hey, one more thing, though, before I, I say that, I don't want to, yeah, um, sure. I, I want to just tell any of your listeners that might be, that might, that that are listening to, to what I was saying about specifically watering towards the end of the year is you do want to give them one, all the trees, you, you'll cut them off, you'll cut the water off, I mean, in our climate in August, but then towards maybe after leaf drop, give them a final drink to get them through the winter. That's what that's what a lot of the literature says to do anyways. So just leaving that there, I do think that that is important. Um, now to answer your question about- I'm so glad you brought that up. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. To answer your question about, you said what's my least favorite activity to do in the garden or-, or Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so my least favorite activity. Um, Hmm. That's a good question. Um, I guess because nothing comes to mind, that's probably a good sign. Um, well, you know, actually I will say this, I think it's for me personally right now, it's, it's anytime there's, there's heavy lifting because I unfortunately slipped a disc in my back, um, between L, I think it was my L4, S1. And uh, whenever I do heavy lifting, I, I feel that now, which is just a big bummer. So I think that would be my answer. Well, Luke, the people I just got off the phone with just started this new show that's going to come out on PBS on the first day of spring, March 21st, called Garden Fit. And it's with this guy that probably will help you address that issue because that was kind of one of the things I told him about my husband's always bending and lifting heavy things and like him and this woman went around to all these different farms and and talked to farmers about what they can do to help uh make make things less painful in the garden and use their bodies better anyway on the flip side what's your favorite activity to do in the garden oh favorite activity I think it'd be observation you know just just infusing that childlike curiosity that I think is in all of us, as long as we, we allow it to be there, infusing that with, um, any, anything, anytime you observe, how do I put it? Anytime you observe just instead of, 
instead of having this narrative of what you think is going on, try to refrain from, try to refrain at least at, at least right off the bat, try to refrain from giving whatever observation that you have a, a narrative. And I know that's, that's tricky, but it's kind of a form of meditation in a way. And I think that allows us as people to, to better connect ourselves with these, these ecological systems of, of which we're certainly a part and it, it'll prevent, I think it'll get us through potentially um, tricky situations, you know, that were, that are tricky because we're creating some false narrative of what we think is going on relative to what actually is going on. And uh, I think that, I think that kids are kids have that intuitive sense, I think, of just not judging something, right? Not creating a judgment or or a narrative. And this is kind of this comes out of the nonviolent communication literature, but um, I think it can be applied to our observations of nature in general. And that's just don't don't be so quick to judge and explain the narrative. Um, do you can do that, but but maybe don't be so quick to do it. And I think that doing, um, yeah, that, that's all to say that I think observation is, is my favorite thing to do. And, I and then maybe that. I'll try to unpack it later. Because I think it also like I, a lot of, you know, people have written books about, you know, with permaculture methods and things about, um, you know, just because you spot a problem, don't just grab for the first like pesticide or whatever that you can like doing what you're saying, observing and, and seeing, you know, what's really going on there. And maybe it's not, you know, one, what you might find out that it's not exactly what you thought it was and there's a better way to treat it or solve your problem. Or a lot of people like have, on my show have talked about like, like if you have aphids and then the black wasps will be on there eating the aphids and it looks like you want to just get rid of that leaf and get it out of there, but it's actually the black wasps doing their job. And if you wait a couple of days, all, you know, that wasps and the aphids will be gone because the wasps ate them and then they've moved on. And I think that's kind of where you're getting at. Yeah, completely. I, I think it was, was it Mal Bill Mollison who said protracted and thoughtful observation will always trump protracted and thoughtless action. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that embodies exactly the example you just gave. Yeah, I think you're right. How about best advice you've ever received in your uh, for growing tree crops? The best advice I've ever received. Um, I think it's I think it's probably just and ad, ad, life advice in general, but to to not be kind of on the same lines of thought as to not be so quick to, to, to take up a narrative or to judge something. Uh, I think it's to continually ask questions and, and not necessarily think you, you know, it all, you know, and I've heard people who know, you know, way more than, than, than I know say that. And I think that that allows us to, remain humble and it allows us to uh, continue that deeper trajectory and that deeper path of, of learning because nothing's getting in the way. Our ego, a narrative, a judgment, um, 
I think in theory, in practice, that that's harder perhaps to do, but I, I do think that it's regardless, I think it's really good life advice and it's good advice when it comes to, to growing anything. How about a favorite tool? If you had to move, it could only take one tool with you. What could you not live without? Ooh, that's a, that's a good one. Um, you know, I, I would probably just say the line of rogue ho tools that we have. Um, I bought, I want to say like three or four, I splurged on some like three or four rogue ho tools and they weren't, they weren't cheap. I think they were like 150 bucks each or maybe yeah, 200 Yeah, but you're not the each. first one to come on and say they're worth every penny. They're so, they're so awesome, you know, and it's a great company too. The people that I've, I've dealt with that are over there at, at rogue are just, they're all, they've always been so kind. I mean, actually, I should just say they've been kind one, the one time that I dealt with them because I haven't had to ever deal with them because the tools have been spectacular. The only time I would probably deal with them again would be to buy more. <laughs> awesome. And I'm, this isn't like a paid promotion. But my other guest is like already in the Zoom meeting because it starts in four minutes. Okay. Um, so just, do you want to tell listeners like how they can learn about you and where they can get in touch with you if they have other questions? Because you really dropped a lot of golden seeds. It was kind of a roundabout way, but I feel like we all learned a ton and just, you have a really great passion for sharing your knowledge. Like I want to say you should start a podcast. Yeah, it would be maybe, maybe someday. Um, yeah, check us out at montanafruittrees.com. Um, we're, we need to come up with some more content. Um, we're actually in the process of hiring a, a, a content creator. Um, so if anybody out there is interested, get a hold of me. Um, but you can check us out there. Um, uh, actually just created an Instagram page. We're kind of, we're kind of late to, to some of this stuff. I'm not the best promoter at times. Um, I guess that's what we're doing here right now though. <laughs> yeah. And it's hard work and it takes a lot of time. Yeah. Sure. So I'm certainly yeah. not either. Like I have all to do to do the podcasting, but I don't know. I like it the best. I got to go, Luke. Thank you so much for sharing with us today. And you have a great day. And I'll probably meet you someday when I come to Missoula. Sounds good, Jackie. I really enjoyed it myself. Thanks. You have a great day. You Bye. too. Take care. Bye. Hey listeners, are you wondering how you can grow your own healthy and nutritious food with confidence? Have you been frustrated as a gardener? Does the thought of weeding make your back ache? Have you tried to grow a garden before and found you can't even keep a plant alive? Does the cost of organic produce in the store make you cringe, but the thought of bugs in your garden make your skin crawl? Well, we have the answer for you. Freegardencourse.com. It is so easy. You enter your email. You will watch a video right there. You can get my Organic Oasis checklist, our Essential Tools checklist. It all shows up right on the thank you page. Freegardencourse.com. Do you know someone who would benefit from the Organic Gardener podcast? If you like what you hear, we'd love it if you'd share the Organic Gardener podcast with a friend. Thanks again for listening and remember, grow local.